0: Today's scripture reading comes from 1 John, chapter 2, verse 28, to chapter 3, verse 3. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles too far along, please do so. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him, as at him coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet revealed we shall shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is, Mm. and everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure.
1: So as as we've been going through the epistle of 1 John, we find that it's full of absolute truths, absolute black and white, and a time and space and culture that is full of uncertainty, endless uncertainty and getting worse. John gives us certainty after certainty after certainty, and he does it to help us remain in the faith, to be strong in the faith, to stand strong on the truth of Jesus Christ. In our passage this morning, John focuses on hope, hope of Christ. In verse 3 that Evan read to us from chapter 3, he says, All who have this hope in him. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. Now, hope is an interesting word. I looked it up in the dictionary, and it gives us three definitions. The first one is to wish for a particular event that one considers possible. I hope tomorrow is going to be 75 degrees. Secondly, to have confidence or trust in something or someone And thirdly, to desire and consider possible. You know, we're hoping to buy a new car next year or two years. This is really what we want, and we're hoping that it's going to happen. John uses definition number two. There is an absoluteness to this hope, a certainty, and it does not waver. There is no doubt. But I think a lot of Christians' hope have slipped to number three. They, they want it to be true. They, you know, it's, I keep hearing about this. They're, they're hoping it will be true, but the absolute confidence is not there in their heart. And unfortunately, there are many Christians who had let that hope slip further to number one. That's more kind of a wish. Yeah, that would be cool if that happened. John's purpose in our passage this morning and throughout his epistle is to get us back to definition number two, to have confidence in, to trust in, having no doubt. And to do that, he talks about the return of Christ. He writes in verse 28 of chapter 2, And now, dear children, remain in him. We talked about that a little bit last week, to continue in him, abide in him. Why? So that when he appears that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. Now, verse 28-29, and we did look a little bit uh, uh, at those last week, they're kind of transitional phrases, so we're going to repeat uh, those two verses a little bit, but they're they're referring back to the first two chapters, as well as moving us forward to the new topic that John is uh, beginning to speak about in chapter 3. In chapter 1, he talked about the conflict between light and darkness, and we are to choose light. Uh, He warns about the conflict between truth and error, and of course, we are to choose truth. And the only way any of that will happen is to remain in Christ and to be built up in Him. But now he gives us an even greater reason to work work out our salvation or to remain in Him, and that is because of his appearing, the appearing of Christ, which is imminent, John refers to the appearing of Jesus Christ three times in these five uh, verses. So this entire section is about our hope, our certainty in the appearing of Christ. Our hope for the return of Christ for those who are his children. They're the only ones that can have this hope. And Folks, we need that hope. In a hopeless world around us, we need something to hang our hat on. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that faith, hope, and love are the three greatest gifts. We talk a lot about faith. We talk a lot about love. But we don't emphasize hope a whole lot. But hope is such a wonderful gift that God has given to us. The very word hope is like turning on a light in the darkness It's like bringing joy into a sorrowful situation. It's like introducing life into into a scene of death. Hope is a word that immediately brightens, it lifts, it produces joy. Life without hope is bleak. So people focus a lot on making the best of this life. Trying to make themselves happy and to have a sense of worth, a sense of meaning in this life. But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, even of Christians, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, if if we've got nothing to look forward to, if that's all our hope is based on, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Well, (laughs) What is your life? James asks in chapter 4. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. If you don't have anything to hope for beyond this life, that's a supreme misery, isn't it? What's after this? What's it all worth? Because this life is at its very best brief and full of trouble. We all know, have sensed that and feel that. And if all our hope is tied only to what happens here, that's horrible. But that's how it is for so many people, perhaps most people around the world. That's how it is for the vast majority of people. There's a bleakness to life because there is no sure hope of life to come. There's nothing out there that offers what the writer of Hebrews describes as a hope that is an anchor for the soul. Anchor for the soul, Hebrews 6, that's real hope. The hope of the righteous, Proverbs ten twenty eight. Says, shall be gladness, but the hope of the wicked shall perish. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, they have no hope, being without God in the world. If you don't have God, you have no hope. Over in Romans chapter 8, verses 23 to 25, there's a cool section that, that looks at our hope. It says, Not only so, but, our, uh, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we eagerly wait for it. What this is saying is that we have a wonderful salvation, but the best part is not yet realized. That's all tied up in this hope that John is talking about. It's certainly wonderful to experience the joys of of salvation uh, now. I mean, it's promised, and we experience that, and it's great. But those joys can't compare to what God has prepared for us when our hope actually becomes full reality. That's why Paul says in verse 23 that we are waiting eagerly for that realization. We are waiting eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. This old body, which experiences sickness and pain and death, is going to pass away. Say hallelujah to that one. And we're going to have a glorified body like Christ when He returns. In the course of that old hymn, came to mind, oh, that will be glory for me. Glory for me, glory for me, when by his grace I shall look on his face. Oh, that will be glory. Glory for me. We live in the hope. We live in the certainty of the appearing of Jesus. And that's what John draws our attention to here in our passage. Verse 28, again, he says, And now, dear children, or little children, remain in him. So that when he appears, when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. And then, uh, verse 2 of chapter 3 when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This makes it very clear as to what our hope is. Our hope is that Jesus will come at his appearing, and at his coming, he will actually appear. And when He appears, we will see Him. And when we see Him, we're going to be like Him. And Paul adds one more step in Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, same word, um, who is manifest when He appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. What a wonderful thing to look forward to. He is coming, and at His coming, He will appear, we'll see Him, we'll become like Him, and then we're going to be with Him in glory. So cool. That's my hope. That's a certainty that I have that keeps me going. I hope that is your certainty as well. Then listen to this promise Paul gives us in 2 Timothy 4.8 that we are to look forward to. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved His appearing. We've got a crown it's going to be awarded to us because we're looking for and loving His appearing. That's all. Now, what, what, what is all this appearing stuff all about? So confusing, right? Revelation. Just can't understand that book. So we tend to ignore it <laughs> or kind of hope for the best. Well, it's not really that confusing, and we've been learning so much about it in our spiritual growth classes on Sunday mornings. Let me try to lay it out in four very simple points, and this is going to be a little bit of a review for, from the class that we had this morning. First of all, he will come for his saints. This is what is called in Scripture the catching away or the rapture of the church. Jesus initially made the promise of his coming for his people in the upper room when he said in John chapter 14, verse 1 Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, <clears throat> there are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you. To myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus says, "I am coming for you. I'm going to receive you. I'm going to come back to take you away with me. Then in First Corinthians 15 verse 51, Paul says, "I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. It's the same event when the Lord comes for His saints, the rapture, and it says that the dead are raised with an imperishable body, and those of us who are still alive, and we're still alive when that event takes place, we are instantly transformed from mortal to immortality. But maybe the most definitive scripture of this event is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Starting in verse 14, we read this, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him, the believers who have died in the past. And here's how it's going to happen. And this is very important to understand the difference between the rapture and the second coming. For the Lord Himself, Paul says in verse 16, will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel, with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first... After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. To be caught up is where we get that term rapture from. Rapture, the word actual rapture is not Greek or Hebrew. It actually comes from the Latin translation of of the Bible. Raptura in Latin can refer to seizure, kidnapping, a carrying off, an abduction, a snatching away. So Paul says we will be caught up, we'll be snatched away to meet the Lord in the air. So he's coming for us. The second phase of it then is that he will appear with his saints at his second coming. This is a separate event. We believe that the Bible tells us that after he has come for his saints and taken us out of the world, there will be a catastrophic event called the Great Tribulation for seven years. Matthew 24, 21 describes it this way, for then there will be a great distress, unequaled. Some people think that we're already in the, in, the, in the beginning of the tribulation. But Matthew says it will be unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. But then at the end of that period called the tribulation, the Lord is going to return. And this time he's returning with his saints that he has already caught up in the rapture. Matthew 24, 21, it tells us the sun will be darkened, the moon will give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of heaven will be shaken, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And John gets even more specific in Revelation chapter 19. Listen, verse 11, I saw heaven standing open, and clean, the armies of the Lord. Who is that? They're dressed in fine linen, white, white and clean. This is referring to the saints who have been caught up in the rapture. Angels don't need fine linen to wear. In fact, just a few verses before that, in verses 6 to 8, there in Revelation 9 19, it says, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride. Who's the bride? It's the church, his church, the saints, his bride has made herself ready, and here it is, fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. That's the church, it's the believers, the saints whom he has caught up, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. He's bringing us back when he comes a second time. So he comes for his saints, then he comes with his saints, dressed in white linen, riding white horses. Why? And this is is the third phase. He comes to reign through his saints. In Revelation chapter 20, Jesus binds Satan for a thousand years at the end of the tribulation time and then establishes his thousand-year kingdom in verse 3. Verse 4 says he establishes thrones. I saw, said John, thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. Who's that going to be? It'll be the saints. More specifically, the martyrs during the tribulation that refused the mark of the beast. Listen, they had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ. A thousand years. So they, along with all the saints who will be coming back with Christ, will reign with Christ for the thousand years. For the first time, the world will see who believers really are, and they'll see them in millennial power. They'll see them in heavenly glory as they come back to reign with Christ. So... He comes for his saints, he comes with his saints, he comes to reign through his saints, and then establishes a new heaven and a new earth at the end of the tribulation. And the fourth element is that he will dwell forever among the saints. We find that in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. It's an amazing thing to be looking forward to to with certainty. And that's what John's whole point in our passage here is this morning. That's why I took the time to try to explain uh, in in, in simple simple points what's going to be happening with the rapture and why we need to be looking forward to that. Folks, get your calendars out. Get your calendars out because this is the next event on God's calendar. This is the next event in prophecy. Prophecy. Because there is no prophecy that needs to come to pass before the Lord comes for His saints for the rapture. That's why we say His coming is imminent. It could happen at any moment. It's the next event. There are no signs leading up to the rapture of the church. It's a signless event. It happens when we least expect it. And we live in the light and expectation of it. We should be living in the light and expectation of it. It's because it's our certain hope. And you know, it's not only John that talks about hope like this. Paul calls it our hope in First Timothy, our blessed hope in Titus, our eternal hope, our good hope in 2 Thessalonians, our comforting hope in Romans, our joyous hope in, uh, also in Romans, our, our righteous hope in Galatians, our glorious hope in Colossians, it's called our better hope in Hebrews and our sure and steadfast hope. And Peter calls it our living hope, our gracious hope, and our defensible hope. And John is saying that it's all because of the promise of the appearing of Christ. And John is going to show us here the powerful influence of living in the light of Christ's coming. And when he does, what he does is he gives us five features to a life lived. In this hope. The first two we've actually talked about last week, but let me mention them briefly again. The first feature related to living in the light of this hope, the hope in the return of Christ, is that the hope is secured by remaining in Him. Again, verse 28. And now, now, little children, remain in Him, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. The word translated as "remain" means to abide, to stay, uh, to, to remain faithful to the gospel. We looked quite a bit at that last time. Remain faithful to Christ. If you want to persist in the benefits and blessings of this hope, if you want to enjoy the motivation and the influence of this hope, then we need to remain faithful. This is a call to perseverance and not to defect like the false teachers did back in John's day. When the going gets tough, when it's rough, when things don't seem to be getting any better, Paul says, remain faithful. Remain faithful because of the appearing of Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. John says a little later in chapter 5, verse 4, Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Nobody who gives up gets victory. We have to remain faithful. Our hope, then, is secured by remaining steadfast. Secondly, it is manifest by righteousness, and we saw that in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Now, our future hope begins to take on some behavioral aspects. The people who really have this hope, the people who remain in Christ, will not only be blameless at the time of His appearing and stand firm or stand before Him confidently and not shrink shrink away from Him in shame, but they are here now manifesting, doing righteousness. Because those who have this hope have it because they've been born of God. They've been changed. And if we are changed, then we will act accordingly. It's it's, it's a hope that only belongs to those who manifest or who do righteousness. Why should that be so obvious? Because if you know absolutely that Jesus is righteous, then you can easily perceive that the one doing righteousness is reflecting the life of Christ because that righteousness came from Christ. A believer will be like their father. A believer, John is saying, is known not by what they claim. A lot of people can say all kinds of things. not by what they claim, but by how they live. It will be evident. So our hope in Christ is guaranteed by remaining in Him. It's manifested in righteousness or doing righteousness. And that we can learn from His Word and and from the leading of the Holy Spirit. The third element in our hope is that it is established by love. It's established by love. As I was reading this, uh, Dean Martin's song came to my mind. When the moon hits your eyes like a big pizza pie, that's amore. When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, (laughs) that's amore. I don't think that's the kind of love John's talking about here. In fact, this is where John kind of gets carried away in verse 1 of chapter 3. See, behold, what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. The world doesn't know us. They don't understand us because they don't know God. But what a privilege it is for us to be called the children of God. John is amazed. He's astonished, thrilled with the reality that we are the children of God. He's overwhelmed just contemplating the amazing grace of God that makes sinners into his children. See, he says, behold, pay attention to something extraordinary that's going on here. Then he said, what great love. But that translation, "what great love," doesn't really do the, the Greek word justice. The Greek word is uh, potapos or potapos, however you pronounce it. it, literally means "what manner of love?" What manner of love? It's all. It's a classic Greek for something foreign, something alien, something that is inexplicable to known terminology. It, it, it really says, look, there is a love that is utterly unknown to us. It's not at all like any human love. It is alien. It's otherworldly. It's a love that human experience doesn't know. It's a love that's outside of ourselves. It's above us. It's beyond us. The same word is used in Matthew 8.27 when Jesus uh, was walking on the water and he stilled still the, uh, the wind and the sea. And remember what his disciples said? What kind of a man is this? Same word. It's it's not understandable. This is outside of our experience. We have a God who loves us with a love that is foreign to anything else we would ever know or the world would know. They don't understand it. And not only that, but he's lavished that love on us and transformed us to be called children of God. And he says, John says, that is what we are. That is what we are. And he he calls us then to unearthly, astonishing, agape love, unconditional love. There's nothing like it in human experience, and therefore we live lives that are alien, (laughs) that are different, that are uh, otherworldly to all those around us. They don't know us. They don't understand us. They can't because they don't understand the transformation that's taken place in us. So in looking at our Christian hope, we then understand that we live in hope because we have been made children of God. We've been made children of God because we were born of Him. We were born of Him because He chose to love us with that saving love. And He didn't just give us His love. He lavished it on us. How did He do that? Well, John actually describes that in chapter 4, 1 John 4, verse 9. Listen, this is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, he goes on to say, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It was free, uninfluenced, undeserved, unmerited, spontaneous, and sovereign love from God that has no human explanation. He loved us because it was in him to love us. And he loved us so much that that we should be called children of God. He brought us as close as we could get. He brought us into his family, children of God. Not just friends, not just co-workers, not just co-laborers, not just members of his kingdom, all of which we are, but he made us family. Adopted as his own beloved children. All of this is affected by God's sovereign, lavish love. And we have this hope because he loved us into this hope. That should be very encouraging and very comforting to us. Scripture tells us he loved us when we were sinners and undeserving. He loved us when we were strangers and foreigners He loved us when we were alienated from Him. He loved us when we were His enemy, and He made us His children. So our hope is secured by remaining in Him, It's manifested by righteousness, and established by love. And fourthly, it is fulfilled in Christ's likeness. It's fulfilled in Christ's likeness. Verse 2, chapter 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God. Okay, John, you already said that. I, I get it. What John is emphasizing here in this, in, in, in this uh, verse is the word now. Now we are children of God. That's what we are now, present day. However, he finishes a verse, what we will be has not yet been made known. We're headed to the fulfillment or the achievement of a new kind of personhood, if you will. A kind of incorruptible, imperishable personhood described in 1 Corinthians 15 that has not yet been apparent to us, has not yet been fulfilled. But here's what we do know, John says. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him face to face. One of the things that makes heaven so attractive is that when I get to heaven, I'm going to be like Jesus. (laughs) I can't even imagine that right now. But that's what he's promised. That's an amazing and even glorious part of my hope and your hope. Paul said in Philippians 3 I want to know Christ, that's my all consuming desire. Paul is saying, that's my goal. I press on on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We're in the process. He's provided the inward transformation, making our spirits come alive, transforming us by the power of the Holy Spirit. But this old body of mine, that's not going to heaven That too has to be transformed, and that's going to happen at the return of Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the imperishable must clothe itself with imperishable... Excuse me, for the perishable must clothe itself with with the imperishable and the mortal... We have these mortal bodies right now, the mortal with immortality. That's how we're going to change. You know what's so amazing, so unfathomable in our our (laughs) little finite minds? He decided to do this eons ago. Romans 8, verse 29 says, For those God foreknew. I don't know how he does that. That's up to him. That God knows who all are going to come into His kingdom. And for all those who are going to be in His kingdom, He says, He also predestined. Now don't be confused by that word. Predestined means to predetermine, to decide ahead of time. And what did God predetermine? He decided ahead of time that all those who would come into His kingdom, who He knows who is going to be, that they be conformed to the image of His Son. That he, Jesus, might be the firstborn, prototokos, among many brothers and sisters. Prototokos, that's an interesting Greek word. Though it does mean firstborn, the way it's translated, it's also where we get our word prototype from. Jesus is our prototype, first and perfect example that we are going to be conformed to. Pretty amazing, right? Right? And one final thought. Our hope, guaranteed by remaining in Christ, realized by righteousness or doing righteousness, established by love, fulfilled in Christ's likeness, then John gives us a very practical aspect here. Our hope is characterized by purity. And we find that in verse 3. All who have this hope, in him, That's why we spend so much time on the appearing of Christ. That's our hope. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. All who have this hope in Him. What hope are we talking about? The hope, the certainty of His appearing and all that entails, including being transformed and glorified into His likeness. Folks, He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He's our model. He's our example He's the one who set the pattern. He's our prototype. He's the one we press after, in in the words of Paul. He's the goal of our life. And if that's true, if we truly, really want to be like Christ, if that's our heavenly hope, then John says we will purify ourselves. Why? Because he is pure. Because he is pure. This amazing hope, this certainty of Christ appearing, which is imminent, leads us into purity because we want to be ready at his coming, which could happen at any moment. That's what the word imminent means. Any moment. It could happen this afternoon. It could happen this evening. It could be tomorrow. We're looking forward to that. Be ready for his coming and not be ashamed. That takes us back to chapter 1, verse 9. How can we be purified? we confess our sins. John lays it out in the very beginning in his letter. If we confess our sins, he is uh, faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and do what? Purify us. That's the purifying process. He will purify us from all unrighteousness. Hebrews chapter 12 2 tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Another way of saying remaining in him. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, the author and finisher of faith. For the joy set before Him, before Christ. What was that joy? The joy that was set before Him. We alluded to that during our communion communion time. His joy was us. His joy was providing us with salvation. For the joy that, that was set before Him, He endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He said, it is finished. Consider him, the writer goes on to say, fix your eyes on Jesus, remain in Jesus. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Another way of saying remain in Jesus, continue in Jesus, because we have that wonderful hope to hang on to, a certain hope to hang on to. Let me close this morning by reading an amazing passage from 1 Peter chapter 1, which kind of ties us all up, starting in verse 3. Just, just listen carefully. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into living hope. He has given us new birth into living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Paul tells in Ephesians that it's a guarantee. The Holy Spirit is a deposit, a guarantee of that inheritance that we're going to get. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexplicable and glorious joy. The world doesn't get this. Why are we filled with that inexpressible joy? And glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. (laughs) That's the certainty of our hope. The certainty of our hope, the guarantee of heaven, the guarantee that Jesus is coming and he's going to appear and we're going to see him and we're going to be like him. And John says, that we need to live in that certainty of that hope, live in that moment of the imminency of the return of Christ so we will be living purified lives. And when we blow it, and we do blow it from time to time, that we are to come back quickly and ask forgiveness, and He will again purify us. That's what that hope should be doing for us. Father, this morning I thank you for your promises Thank you for the certainties that we are studying and, and we are perhaps getting a, a new, new handle on. And Father, I pray that it will just not be an intellectual certainty. Yeah, I, I believe that. Yeah, it sounds good. But that it will become a heart change. That there will be a new transformation that takes place perhaps in our hearts and a purification that takes place. And I pray that we will become so attuned to your Holy Spirit as he pricks our consciences, consciences as, as we are about perhaps even to to fall into sin or, 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 or fall in our weakness, that we will hear the Holy Spirit speak to us and we, we will take that energy, the power that you have given to us in Christ, the victory that we have in Christ to come back and stay on track of doing righteousness. Father, I thank you that you have provided the forgiveness at the cross, and that we can live in that purity. In Jesus' name, amen.